Welcome travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your not-so-humble guides on the quest for RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. On our show, we feature diverse tabletop RPG systems, demonstrating them through actual plays and breaking down the rules to provide you with tips, tools, and techniques to help you navigate them. We also love bringing the content creators behind these games into the studio to give you a peek behind the curtain with relevant and insightful interviews. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world or system you're playing. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, diverse NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. What if I told you there is a world where not only are monsters like vampires and werewolves real, but they have rights just like you and me. And in this world, there exists a secret government organization dedicated to keeping you safe and making sure they follow the rules. Welcome to Anaria. A Monster of the Week podcast. Each episode, you will follow the story of three agents of Anarian, played by Rob Hamilton, Taylor Catron, and Cameron Bacon, as they navigate through the treacherous world that Game Master Samuel Herbert has imagined for them. Tune in on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever your preferred podcast platform is. It's dangerous out there, folks. So, remember, leave the monster hunting to us. The professionals. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. So we're going to be diving into our Storyteller's Toolbox here a little bit to break down part of the process that we go through when we're designing game sessions. But before we get into that, Mr. Myers, Mr. Miller, good evening. Nice to see you again. It's been it always It's only been a week, but it feels like it's been a while since we got together. I hope things are good in your worlds. How are things? Doing pretty good. Hanging out in Virginia Beach, visiting some family and friends. Uh, we're in a condo for a hot minute instead of the RV for the next three days. So I'm literally like two streets from the beach. And Virginia, nice. Virginia Beach is, I don't know, 87 miles long. Not quite, but yeah. it, you can't see from one end of it to the other. It's crazy. It's a long walk. That sounds, uh, sounds awful being two steps, two, two blocks on the beach. Like miserable. Yeah. How and, do you and they're two short blocks too. I, if I stood in the middle of the road, I might be, no, I don't have the arm to throw a football that far. <laughs> <laughs> how about you mr how about you mr like, what, what's up let's, let's try to bring some sanity into this discussion this evening <laughs> i'm gonna try to sublimate my frustration with the humble brags going on right now but uh, first of all hi to all the family down there in virginia beach love you miss you for reals glenn please let jen know but I am having a pretty awesome week. Work has been, the 95 has been cool, but more importantly, or as importantly, 
I got out last weekend, got some singing done, powered through about with the yuck and managed to be okay in time, not tested safely, mind you, but to run a live learn to play for a Star Trek Adventures game, which went famously lots of really great insights about the 2D20 system and the Star Trek game in specific, running a box adventure, same one we ran for the actual play with a separate group and learn some really interesting nuances to the Star Trek system with that separate group and some different ways that different people and the way individuals play their characters impact the way that a story flows. Good stuff, and I'm planning to do it again on Friday. going to head back to H.H. Ellis Technical High School here in Connecticut. They have a family game night going on, and TJ was invited. I am the closest member of the cast here, so I'm going to be headed up there to run the same thing. Timing is a little bit different, so I won't be running a full adventure, but we're going to go through some character creation, some talking about the STA game, and hopefully bring some more folks into the STA fold. So really Uh, having a bang-up week. Yeah, and I think that particularly when you were talking about the experience that you had with with running STA this weekend, even though you were running the box set and so ostensibly running the same thing, I think that this some of the insights that you had in that could be very interesting in the scope of this episode, where we're going to be talking about how we set out as a storyteller to craft the timeline for an individual session and how, what are the, what are the boxes or the encounters or whatever kind of structural mechanic you're using? We're going to talk about how do we lay that out and how do we plot out what we're going to be throwing in front of players when they get there and probably a little bit about how we improvise when players skip from step one to step three. What do we do about step two in that sort of situation? Right. And I think so there'll be some insight, I think, from the, from your SDA game this weekend on that particular line. Yeah, I, interesting. Definitely did some things differently than I have done them in the past, which resulted in a very fun game. I had great compliments on the fun of the game. There is a player who played not that adventure, but in our virtual game and also played live uh, in this game. So it was the first time he ran this scenario and he did some things different and he felt he actually learned the system even better live like he picked up on some things that he was not aware of and once again yeah we'll get into it but the box once again just really does a masterful job of teaching people how to play this game it is singularly the best way to learn to play this game is to run that run those scenarios cool all right, so let's get into the meat and potatoes here. I think that this is going to be one of those episodes that's revealing for all of us also, which are, I'm really looking forward to having another kind of a discussion. From our pre-show discussion, I'm thinking that Lewanika and I agree in in how we're going to go ahead and lay out that groundwork. So, Glenn, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit here, because I think that based on our pre-show no, that's talk not cool, that, that Lewanika, I know, but it's what I do. Hey, when I'm running the show, I kick it to who I want. When... Lee Winika and I were talking with you ahead of time. I was thinking that Lee Winika and I follow the same process, which we'll dive into in a minute here, but I'm curious as to what your process is. So if you're getting ready to run a game session, either within a larger campaign or as a one shot or whatever, how do you lay out the timeline for the sequence of events that you're going to throw in front of your players? So... It's interesting that you ask, because that's something I wouldn't have been able to give you as specific an answer on before a couple of years ago, because it used to be very much fly by the seat of my pants. But these days, because I made this commitment of trying to get away from the supposed to be four-hour section that turns into six to eight, <laughs> which used to run rampant through all of my role-playing circles. Sometimes we didn't even bother setting an end time. We would just play all play till everybody quit. 
Yeah. But that's also difficult to prep for. But uh, now I'm trying to manage a more finite and have been for a while, a more finite session, a more episodic blocked out time frame. And I've really been starting to try to drill down into that. And for my average four-hour session, the way that I start is whatever our story I'm working with, whatever campaign I'm on, however, because it, it depends, obviously, on exactly what the plot is. But I try to come up with each session contains, aside from the intro, that they all have whatever intro I do to get people into the start, to get us rolling. And then they all have three events or scenes. It may be yeah. two role play scenes in a combat. It may be a small combat, a boss fight. Actually, if it's a small combat and a boss fight, that's probably all it is. Boss fights are their own element. Because there's never actually, no matter how much time I think there's going to be, there's never more time <laughs> to fit a fourth thing in. Ever. Ever. Yeah. You always yeah, go over it. Always. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that also works really well with the, the three-act process of creating an episode for building your rising action, your climax, and falling action. So that's a loose framework that I start with. And then I start just trying to come up with ways to make that fun and then drill down on the detail into whichever details it is that are going to bring that encounter to life. If I'm creating a city encounter, I'm going to spend some time on some random city encounters as they move through a marketplace or something along those lines, because that's what's going to help me bring my city to life. But if I'm running an epic pursuit, then that scene might get turned into some form of a chase scene with various obstacles that are going into it. So whatever elements I actually designed to fill each of those three spaces, that's the general gist of it. There are three events that are going to happen. I figure out what order they're going to take place in, and then I do my best to make them cool as shit. Yeah. That is actually remarkably insightful, first of all, because it lets me know that all three of us, I think, follow a very similar process. And I think maybe the difference is maybe more of a terminology difference more than anything else, because I don't think of it as three big events that you're structuring around, although I still do follow the three-act structure. Events are scenes or acts. It doesn't have to be an event, yeah. but three things are going to happen. I think about them as more of milestones, right? Is that for me, there are three touch points that are going to happen. But those touch points are pretty brief. So when we were doing the actual play, the last actual play where we were in the mountain and the game session started with the fight with the gigantic iron golem right at the mm -hmm. beginning of the adventure, right? So I knew heading into that session, that entire mission was going to be a two-parter. I knew just based on the number, the amount of stuff that happened. And I was largely following the plot that was laid out in The Wild Beyond the Witchlight. So I had framework for that episode, but I also knew that it was going to be pretty different also. Like the Iron Golem scene in that was in that quest does not happen in uh, Wild Beyond the Witchlight. There is no analog. It was a totally new uh, attachment to the beginning, right? I didn't know which way the combat was going to go, but I knew that the combat was going to happen, right? Thing one. The next thing that I knew was going to happen was that scenario at the lake when you meet the guy that's chasing the paratons and he's basically cursed to go ahead and round the lake trying to light his own beacons, blah, 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 blah. Yep. And then the other thing that I knew was going to happen was the encounter at the chessboard with the Coreds. In between those three touch points, there were probably 
a half a dozen things that could have happened, larger scene pieces that I could right. have dropped in there. So if, for example, the Iron Golems had gone in such a way that you all fled right, and just decided not to deal with the Iron Golem at all and just ran away, I couldn't like bank on a two-hour combat, which is what it wound up being, but I couldn't bank on that. Right, so right, if right. you had just we fled- We were playing yeah. 5e, so if there's combat, you can bank on <laughs> it's it. It's going to be two-hour combat, hours. exactly, right. Two yeah. hours. Yeah, yeah. Generally, that's true, but with the Paraton thing, my character took care of that in righteous, quick fashion. I unasked except the enemies that there were out of that Paratons. Yeah, except that there were an unlimited okay, number of Paratons. I didn't so, know yeah, that. Th- you, I took you, care of all the ones right. I saw. You, so, cooked, you so, kicked so some we, serious ass, yes, but that, that ass-kicking still took <laughs> some time. Yeah, exactly, because y'all were tired because you just fought the Iron Gold. And you, you want to talk about storyteller secrets, right? Like, you guys didn't know that there were an unlimited number of Paratons. The number of Paratons that you faced in that fight was how long did I want you guys to fight Paratons. That's how many Paratons there were. There were yeah, always more. There were always more or less if I wanted that combat to go ahead and end. And then the combat ran exactly as, I, as long as I wanted it to. But again, even in between those kind of touch points, so it's like you're at the Iron Golem, what happens there? That's totally up to the players. Depending on which way you go, I have other things that I can pull out, like the scene w- with the Braganox in the cave. Where it happened to fall in was just where it was convenient for it to go ahead and happen, but it was always in my back pocket. I always could have pulled on that. And those back pocket scenes I didn't mention, but that's important. Yeah. Something that has to do with the plot and the story, a couple of back pocket ideas in case they don't take the bait and they, your players deviate. Is right. always like, how do you get them back idea. into the plot? Right, exactly. Right. Or or just how do you give them a, how do you give them an extra way in if they hit a brick wall elsewhere? That Braganox yep. scene gave us a way in if we failed yep. to figure out a way to get in there or what yep. have you. So yeah, that that was a good call. Another one that was a great example, actually, of the same thing was the of the adventure that we ran in the swamp. That entire encounter with the with the frog people when you're in the swamp, that entire scene could have happened anywhere. You could have run into the king of the frog people at any point in that swamp. But where did it come in? And when did I go ahead and decide to try it out? When the plot had languished a little bit. You guys weren't totally sure what you wanted to do or where you needed to go. So what I needed to do was to bring out something that said, here's somebody that knows and their goals align with yours in a way, but they're going to make it hurt a little bit for you guys to get the information that you want. And that's why that scene at that point in time worked out. So it's like you had, you'd come through, you'd almost lost to the big suctiony siphon things with the, that were filled with water. Uh, you almost fell into those traps. Luckily you avoided those. And then eventually you had to go ahead and wind up on the island with the hag and fight them and meet the shadow beasts, right? But I had to get you there, right? And so that's kind of where that scene came up. So again, it's more about building touch points. Like I know that my players need to do X, Y, and Z, and then there are going to be things that I can slide in between those touch points to go ahead and either make the journey between the touch points longer or shorter as need be. So what about you, Limika? Well, how about how does yours work? I'll just do this really briefly, a quick sentence or so. I plan a lot of my homebrew games well in advance. I plan my world generally in advance. I plan a lot of overall plot stuff. So when I go into each individual session, for me, it can be a lot more like hitting a couple things on a checklist or several things on a checklist to make sure the game runs smoothly. In that checklist of things that that I need to run smoothly, the first consideration I make is, what's the length of time for the session? Glenn alluded to that greatly, where he used to run big, epic, long sessions, and he underplayed that. There were sessions we played (laughs) that would start 
the second we got out of work on a Friday, whether it be six o'clock or one o'clock in the morning, and we played until no less than three people fell asleep. We keep playing. If two people fell asleep, they're just out. We'll NPC their characters. Once the third person went down, we play. There people be sleeping at the table. That's how long we'd play. And then we get up at some time in the afternoon and we play some more. We did foolish things like that back in the day. Right. None of us do that anymore. We're too we're old. A, yeah, we're adults of an age. We have, we have lives. We have family. I was a sugar cabinet. <laughs> yeah, there's more gray than color on most of the hairs on my head. That kind of thing. In my personal sessions, I generally run sessions in three different time blocks. Five hours, three hours, two hours. One of my home games is a month is a weekday night. So people have to work. By the time I get out of work and we get it is generally about two and a half hours of game time unless we run long, which does happen a lot, but we try to keep it within the two and a half hour time frame. Session prep for those for that game is very different than session prep for some of the stuff I do for TTJ, which tend to be five hour block sessions. So things like planning when I do breaks, how much time I will allow for kibitzing is very different on a five hour block session versus a two, uh, two and a half hour session. I have another home game that tends to run in the three to three and a half hour range, which sit somewhere right in the middle and remembering that this game is supposed to be fun. So if you don't allow for kibitzing and having fun and it's just, we got to get down and get the game done. No one's going to enjoy that. And you're going to lose that game group very quickly. So even in those games that are there two and a half hours, one of the things I do is I plan to have the zoom window because that's a virtual game open 45 minutes before we start gaming. Why? Because people sign in, they're kibitzing, they get a lot of that energy out. Sometimes I'm on and I'm talking with them while we're getting ready to go, but that's on purpose. That's a plan. That's a purposeful event because it is an event for friends to get together. Right now, when I do things on the TTJ side, though, a lot of the folks we game with are friends or have become friends and we still need to have that time. Again, I have a five hour block. So I can take 15 minutes at the beginning, cover some details, make sure we've covered just a brief recap of any session zero stuff, that type of thing. And then we can have a little bit of convincing if we bust into a couple jokes about previous games or previous sessions. It's perfectly okay in that five hour session. You can kind of let that game flow because you've got that time. But when I do plan that, one of the things I do is plan those touch points that Josh mentioned. So if I'm on a two hour session, I don't have time to do three or four of those touch points in a session. I'm going to do a session that is one of those touch points. So for my weekday game, I am doing an RP session. I am doing a planning session for a future conflict, or I'm doing that conflict or combat scenario. And that's what a two and a half hour game is. You are doing effectively one main encounter. That's right. all you one have time for. And if it is a boss fight, that boss fight is almost guaranteed to be two sessions long. So that's how I plan those two-hour sessions. When I plan those three-hour sessions, I get a little more leeway. So I can plan an RP session, and I will make sure I have available at as need be. If the RP goes long, deep, and it's good, and everybody's engaged – I can let a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour game go all RP and be perfectly fine with that. But I will have at the ready a random encounter or a or some kind of unexpected thing. Like if they're languishing in that RP session, I will have less of a random, more of a planned 
this is what happens when the good guys are sitting around not moving the plot forward kind of event. So I will have those things or I will throw in, here's what's happening in the world because you're not moving. The world's moving around you and this is what's going bad because you didn't get there in time. I will have those things in those sessions. For a planning session where they're planning for the com- conflict, they're raising troops, gathering resources, doing that shopping trip, trying to gather allies or whatever, which does get into the RP, but doesn't necessarily get there. It might be scouting the area, some exploration type stuff. I will, again, have random encounters. I might have a small planned conflict, like they might hit some minions in a mini conflict or a trap or something like that. It might be a quick item find or a brief, very similar to those one-page encounters that you can get somewhere. I might run one of those up real quick. That will be in that three-hour session and again if i have a boss fight plan unless something happened and they ended up doing that in the middle of another session i generally plan to start that boss fight like it'll like i'll end the previous session we roll initiative i have the initiative order i save it that way when we start we're ready to rock yeah i might even do the first round of combat on the final session just so we are in media res there's no lead up there's no conversation we are starting round two we're ready to rock And that boss fight will probably take me most, if not all, of that three-hour session. And if it does leave me any time in there, it's the denouement from that boss fight. It's the, okay, here's how we get out of here. We're going to search. We're going to grab this other thing. And I may run down what they get. We may actually do some leveling up at the end of that or what have you. And we may do that live versus uh, off game. And then on the... the before, Before you change topics... Yep. So, Glenn, you had something that you wanted to say about boss fights. And then, Lee Winnie, I have a question for you. So you don't get to go ahead and change topics yet. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Glenn. My boss fight thing, he actually brought in himself very much at the end, but I agree 100%. Basically, I wanted to, make, I wanted to go over the fact that in my three events system, boss fights are their own animal. And I never put boss fights at the end anymore. You don't play a session up and end at a boss fight any longer. Mm. Now you end in the opening monologue from the villain or in it right after the scene is set. Wherever I can set the stage for the boss fight and end it on a, are you serious cliffhanger? Are you stopping right now? And I stop there. And the reason I do that is because I got so tired of putting huge amounts of effort into creating an epically cool boss fight, whether it's got progressive stages or a really cool environmental effect like the Rocky Shoal I encounter I designed with the waves and the tide coming in and out, pushing people around with people. And there were hostages tied in the surf that when the surf was in, they were underwater, which created all kinds of panic among the players, but then the side oh, would wow. go out yeah. and the captives could breathe again. I uh, love that. The surge would go out and they could breathe again. And I had to truncate it. And I lost half of my cool crap because we were running out of time. We were getting tired and we were going to have to quit. And we were almost done. And it wasn't enough left to be able to end it and continue it. And I hate that. So boss fights are their own animal now. We will end the session before a boss fight and start the next one with it. So that you get (laughs) full time to deal with all of the nastiness that I have prepared. Even if you have to end the 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 session early mm-hmm. i have had five hour sessions and i've ended at three because yep, it's gonna take four hours everything i want everything in i want every player to push all the chips in exactly and make that happen that's where the coolness honestly we have talked for three years about 
levels, adventures, space, termination, motivation, movement, all the different things we can to make these encounters big and epic and memorable. And it doesn't happen if you can't give it room to breathe. So, rush it. Yeah. so my goal as a storyteller is to make sure that I give it that time. I will pace. I will stall. I will throw a minor encounter in just to eat Absolutely. up a little more time. Yeah. Just so by the time they get to that boss fight, it's the big thing that it is really the only thing. And it's like, I, like Len said, you bring them right to the gate. You bring them right to the door. I will tend to do that first round of combat and I will do something massive. I will use whatever the legendary effect or whatever the layer effect is. I will cave in something. I will take out some NPC that they were hoping to save. I will do all <laughs> kinds of craziness. Dude, have the Skyrim, have the Skyrim letter carrier just fall out of the sky and come up being like, I have an important letter for you, your eyes only, and anything yeah. you can to delay them. If you're yep. not a Skyrim player, you won't get that. No, that's fantastic, yeah. I'm not, but what Glenn's saying is you want Nick Fury to come out of the darkness, walk up to Tony Stark and say, I'd like to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. Cut scene. Done. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. That's what you want before that boss mm. encounter. Oh, and, I was just trying to come up with a play tactic, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you got to do different things. Every type of game, every game system is going to be mildly different because of the way the mechanics work or the way your scene sure. construction is. And I will say Star Trek Adventures is mildly different than this because it's set up in very clear acts. And I think it's better designed to fit into a nice three to four hour block. Like you can yeah. edit in three but it and it can breathe in four. Our five hour sessions are perfect for it because that allows maximum commits. And you get any geeks around talking Star Trek, there's going to be commitment, guaranteed. So five hours sure. works fine. But honestly, I ran the live session. We did it in about three and a half hours, four hours, and got through it. There wasn't extra time. We weren't particularly late. Worked very well, and we had plenty of convincing time as well. So in that regard, it works fine. My five-hour sessions, like I said, work pretty much like my threes. I just will add a few other things. Like it might be a few more minions in the smaller conflict. I might add additional exploration along the way to give them some cooler things to do, more NPCs to work with. Or the, the, they might be some, some more RP with the big boss before the conflict begins. Yeah. So I like that you brought up STA because that actually feeds directly into the question that I had. And a little bit of background first, when I ran my first session of STA, and it was the first game session I'd ever run in this game system. So I was still kind of like kicking the tires on the rules and still trying to go ahead and figure out exactly how it worked and everything like that. And as we have commented before, the pacing of an STA game is just different. And Glenn, you were sitting in on that game, right? I fully expected that game session to take about three hours. And the fact that it took almost five surprised me. Now, there were reasons for that. And it, in terms of some of the chestnuts that you as players latched onto and ran with, which meant having to alter my trajectory to those touch points, like we were talking about, it made me have to do a little bit more work to get you to where I needed you to go. Well, you, had to, you had to lead us back onto the reservation too, because we were going pretty far afield. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you went a little far afield. And so I had Wild to conspiracy like, theories <laughs> abound. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, if I remember correctly at one point, uh, like someone's like, can I get, can I make a, a, a con security check to go ahead and investigate this? I was like, okay, guys, here's the thing. That's not a thing. If I just tell you that, will you stop investigating it? <laughs> like, like literally, let's step behind the curtain for just a second here. That's just not a thing. You, If we just 
stop. <laughs> just that's just not a thing. Let's just forget that ever happened and let's roll on. Uh, and that honestly was pretty important actually to get you guys back on because I felt I, I saw you guys starting to spin wildly out of control and because uh, I think I I built a little a couple too many layers into the plot, too many threads for you guys to go ahead and pull on and. Uh, Hoping that you guys would pull the ones that I wanted you to pull, and unfortunately, you pulled the ones I didn't necessarily want you to pull. It's kind of like oh, when we, we did we pulled the, um, exactly the right ones. We just yeah, had, we just <laughs> jumped to the wrong conclusions. Yeah, it was kind of like in in the one D and D actual play, which will one maybe one day see the air when we were on the bridge. We could go left or we could go right, and you'd only right. written stuff for the right, and we decided to go to the left. And so all of a sudden, right. what was on the right was on the left, right? Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, temporal so, glitch. Where, where, where I was going with that is, is the question that, that came up is. I'm thinking about that session about how, okay, in my mind, I'm like, I think I have about three hours of game here, and it wound up taking five. Leeming in your two and a half hour scenario, if you're really only hitting one touch point, how do you plan for, how do you accommodate variation in what happens at the table? If, oh, how, like, where do you put the touch point? Do you put the touch point at the end, beginning, in the middle? And what happens if your players don't get there? How do you, how do you handle that? Because that's just so, not a lot of time. Yeah, it's not. And uh, first thing, I thought you were going to ask me a different question, so I actually had some notes where I thought you were so going, you go. which yeah. I will get to. I really appreciate that, Late <laughs> folks out there. Please understand that this is a sign of a great conversationalist when you think they're going one way and they go another way, but it's actually just as, if not more interesting than the first way you've got gold. Yeah. So yeah. let me go with the question you're asking and we'll probably <laughs> yes, back please. the other one. Um, yes, please, Congressman, answer the question so, I asked. Yeah, the question do you, do you remember asked. what the question was at this point after this much obfuscation? <laughs> La Sombra. All right, back to the point at hand. With those touch points, I think the key is knowing your players and knowing your group. I have the luxury, my, my, my Monday night group, which is that two and a half hour game, I have known one of the players for 20, almost 30 plus years. I have known the other players since the beginning of the pandemic. So we've got, we're three years in at this point that I've known them. We have in many, of actually everybody in that group I have met in person except for one at, that, at this point. And I know them very well. We have been gaming this particular campaign for the entire time. So we are now in tier four. So I know their touch points. The plot where we are allows me to know how driven the players and their characters are to get where they got to go. So a lot of the heavy lifting with your question has already been accomplished. How did I get there to this point? When it was earlier on in that echelon, when I didn't know them as well, the answer is pretty simple. I floundered. I struggled. I worked through it. We got better at it. I literally had to learn them to be able to navigate that well. And there was something about the story I was putting together, which is entirely homebrew, and the trust they had in me as a storyteller that allowed them to stick with me while I learned their play styles, while they learned my play styles, so we could do that well and I could plan a better game. From a session prep perspective, it's as simple as saying, I know what I need to do at the end of one session to get ready for the next session. I ask a lot of questions towards the end of my session. If we have wrapped up an RP session, it's okay. So are you going to do the thing? Or are you gonna be planning to do the thing next session? They tell me they're planning, then I know what I'm doing the next session so I can prep that planning. And we pretty much start right there. Any of the stuff that may have to be done in between, 
like in the episode where we talked about discussions and alternate channels to with your game groups, whether it be Discord or Facebook IM or individual emails, or in some cases, I'll just see them uh, out like on a karaoke night. I'll invite them down and we'll, and we'll yap much to the chagrin of my wife for about 30 minutes on the game stuff. But I will have some of those little intermittent conversations. So a lot of that work is done before the game as well. That's part of my game prep is really just communicating with my players so I know what they want to do in the next session. So I can really mu- pretty much start on that two-hour session right there. You're right. On a longer session, a five-hour session, you can work into it. You can say, okay, you're walking, you're getting there. You can figure out those questions as you go. In a two-hour session, you got to get to the point. And so I find ways off-channel to do that. And it took a mm. while to learn how to do it. Interesting. Do you want early access to every Tabletop Journeys episode? How about exclusive content, live broadcasts, and the chance to throw dice with your favorite hosts and fellow fans? Or, heck, do you just want to support the show? Join our Patreon today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. We have tiers to fit any budget for a monthly commitment, or you can make a one-time contribution to the cause. We love doing the show for y'all, and support helps us keep creating and producing great content for you. So join us today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. So now what was the question that you wanted me to ask? (laughs) It wasn't so much that I wanted you to ask it. I don't think there's a specific question, but one of the things you mentioned brought to my mind what you were experiencing with STA specifically, I think was because it was entirely homebrew versus box set. So now that I have run the two different box set adventures or actually episode one and episode two from the starter box, and then I've run episode one a second time from the starter box and I have run one homebrew session at this point, I have figured out some nuanced differences. So here at TTJ, we love collaborative world building. We build that in. When you do collaborative world building, that is extra time. If you have six players and you're doing collaborative world building, build an extra hour. You just have to. So in other words, I can't do that unless it's a planning session for my two-hour group. And if I do that for my three-and-a-half-hour group, It's that and a little bit of RP or a little bit of planning, knowing that the next game has to be the rest of the RP, the rest of the planning, and move on to that smaller encounter for the boss fight on the back on on the third session out. With the five-hour group, I can do the collaborative world building. I can then do smaller things. So I basically take a five-hour session, treat it like a -a two-and-a-half-hour session, and add in the collaborative world building. That's how I would do any homebrew game. STA, because of its act structure, will allow for that in a five-hour session, but then you have to know where you have to peel back. So if I've got threat, I'm probably not adding extra enemies. I may not use threat to have the enemies last longer in a conflict scenario, but Mm -hmm. I will add threat to make complications. So I do things to make things a little more challenging or a little more difficult, but I don't use the threat mechanism to make things take longer, right? Or I will then spend a little bit of my DM fiat. I will suggest things like you can ask a question. 
you've got enough momentum, the scene's coming close to an end. You may want to spend that momentum to get additional information on this task you just successfully completed. There's some immediate spends you can do. So I will get them to get additional information, which will help them speed up that scene a little bit. So I won't ask that if things are going swimmingly and we've got plenty of long time. But when I ran my homebrew session, I was absolutely asking those kinds of questions because I knew that we had spent some time with some of this collaborative world building stuff. And so I knew how to plan that in. And I think STA actually makes it easier than some of the other game systems we talk about because there's mechanics for it. I want to speed up or slow down a scene. I have threat and momentum to work with. I want them to do better in a situation to speed it up. I suggest for them ways they can spend their momentum without telling them what to do. I say, just don't forget you have that or what have you. Whereas if I don't have that time or I have too much time, I may not make that suggestion. So there are some dials and knobs that STA has that other game systems don't. And now that I've run three different game sessions, I'm learning that. And I'm also learning the same thing that I was learning with my Monday night group. Different groups do things differently. They are better at some things than others. So I am learning the players. And quite honestly, that's going to help me know when I need to ask those questions or lean back on those questions and let them take over on their own. Side comment that I just have to throw out there. Because we're talking about briefly the STA games tends to... Basically, they lent themselves to a different type of story better than, than D&D. And I couldn't help but be like, of course, part of that's the genre of the game. Playing a Starfleet officer is totally different than playing a barbarian named Kronk, who eats the candlesticks off the table because they're his favorite snack. It's Starfleet officers and a Starfleet team and a bunch of Trekkies playing a role-playing game trying to be Starfleet officers on a team that was my biggest takeaway in my first and only STA game so far was logging into play with a group of players for the first time together in the game. Everybody stayed on task, on mission, working together like Starfleet does. Hmm. Basically, Starfleet doesn't hire murder hobos. That's interesting because I wonder, I want to say that's not right. But, it doesn't mean we couldn't get into some shenanigans in Starfleet. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. We could get into some serious shenanigans. Give us the yeah. hollow deck and some downtime, and we can cause some we can cause some ruckus. I, but, I guess it's saying that that part of the social contract, part of that social contract that we talk about, where it's like everybody's on the same page, it is almost a little bit more strict than it is in a D&D game where there, there are options for being a little gray. Like, you, like because when you were first talking, I was like, oh, Barbarian eating the candles. That's like the Klingons, especially like when Worf, in the first couple seasons of Next Generation, Worf is very Barbarian. Mm-hmm. And he kind of refines as the writer mature and his storylines mature. But if you think about, if you think about Worf, pilot Worf, that in season one, he's almost feral at the panel there. And then I think they very quickly and correctly by season three decided they weren't going to do that anymore. You're in a a paramilitary organization. It does not completely work with the free form wander where we will half of us do one thing, the other half do another. Yeah. And somebody else is just, playing the loot in the corner and not paying attention to the mission at all. That doesn't really work in a Starfleet or military yeah. environment. And that's part of it. It's the design of the game has more 
structure and discipline to it just because yeah. it's set in Starfleet. You're not wrong. You're absolutely right. But what I would say is that's all about the game you set up. So when I said at the beginning of this conversation that I do a lot of my planning early on, because I know when I'm starting a campaign, the general time frame I'm going to be running that campaign in. When I knew I was doing the original Northerners game, it was going to actually be a one shot and it was going to be at a convention. I knew that was going to be a two and a half to three hour game. I knew that was my time frame. Because of that, I set parameters with my session zero conversation. We didn't have a whole session zero, but we had a session zero conversation as far as what would happen. So I started that game. You have already been hired. You have already briefly met. And now we're moving forward. And you basically started the game walking out of the door of the tavern where you got the job. So there was no kibitzing or figuring out we don't want the job. That had already been decided. That's how I started the game. And then they went off on right. a mission. That was on purpose because of those things. When I started my Barstock campaign, I started knowing that was going to be a three and a half to four hour game session on or whatever. And that was originally live. It eventually came virtual because of pandemic. When I started that, I built into the session zero on the social contract. I said, look, I don't want an inter-party conflict, and I set these basic parameters because I'm a big fan of the movie Four Brothers with Mark Wahlberg, Andre 3000, mm-hmm. Garrett Hedlund, and Tess Gibson. Love that movie. Boston, love it. God, that, that, that's just a thing for me. I said, that's what this group is. You're a bunch of people. Play any kind of character you want. You grew up in this orphanage. You were raised by loving parents who took care of you, and you follow each other. You don't always get along but your brother before anybody else always. That's the one thing that every character has in common. That's the one through line for the whole campaign I want you to follow. Everything else is up to you, fair game. And because I set that, it takes a lot of that guesswork. So very similar to that Starfleet thing. I set a very strict parameter, but people knew that before they started playing, they agreed to it when they played, and the players that showed up at my table continue to play that we're now at 17th level getting ready to move on to 18th and we've been playing that since we played five levels of zero level with that game so a long time because that game started a year and a half before pandemic you know no and you're uh, not wrong at all you can definitely write the group together and you can create the story and give them the reasons why they are already part of a unit there's lots of things that can be worked into that i simply meant that just based on the core of loose chaotic fantasy anything you want versus adventure in Star Trek, that game's already set up to start bringing that piece out. It's Absolutely. Like already there. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, far better for desperate people that, like, if I have a walk in game, I would rather do that because it's part of the lore of the game and the mechanic of the game. It's not a, here's what I want to run. That's the game. And I think that works much better for just gathering random people to sit down and play a game than some of the other fantasy things that we might have. There's a little more head work that has to be done for the other things. And as for our conversation on session prep, that's a calculation. Where are the, when your players hit the table, where are their divergent paths? How do you yeah. plan for the unexpected? How unexpected can the unexpected be? Yeah. And I think yeah, that's important. That's the one that I always struggle with is the is setting up the bumpers in the gutters, right? Like how far afield can they go 
and still give you a uh, direction to drive the plot, right? Because you don't want to be railroady. You don't want to make them feel like their choices don't have any uh, any import. Or agency. Or, or exactly. You don't want to rob them of their agency. That's thank you. That's the that, that was the word I was looking for and couldn't quite find. Gotcha. Uh, you don't want to rob them of their agency while at the same time you want to make sure that the plot that you're revealing gets its payoff. So like you were talking about with the boss fights. Boss fights are gonna be their own thing. You're working on delaying sessions to go ahead and have the boss fights at the beginning of the adventure. There's the other side of that coin too, that oh goodness, they are so far away from the boss fight because they went off and did something else how do I now make this payoff worth it? And so that's the other side of it. In that scenario, there's always the, are you going to go there now? And then at the end of that session, and if they say yes, voila, you start the next session, you're there, you traveled. You don't have, you don't have to have travel time be a thing. You can, and oftentimes it's fun if you do, but if that's not fitting into your adventure structure or your session structure because of timing or other factors, then that is something that can be eliminated. You'll have to add that element elsewhere. The other thing I would mention is what Glenn did with the one D and D playtest that we did illuminated something for me that I had seen before and I had seen very well before, but I also really liked the way Glenn did it because he took it to a whole different level. And then I've seen Benito do that as well. This comes up in streams of Sphero where it's, are we going really left to where we need to be right now? And sometimes we do because that's the story we're in and that's the way our various players play our various characters. But when Benito started the Old Ways to Sphero live stream. It's like nailing Jello to a tree trying to get yeah. the streams of Spiro moving in the same direction. So, it's sometimes like it is. It's jello to a tree. Yeah. <laughs> but with old ways to Spiro, without him even seeing what Glenn did, Benito did a very similar thing. He said, this is the town we're going to be in. The scope of the game is you're all going to be basically the pillars of this community and then make your characters. So we made our characters. With him, he gave us our individual character stories. And then he said, now, I want you to give me what you, the elements you want in your backstory. I'll write the back, the full backstory. But in those elements, I want you to pick, he actually assigned a different player in the group. And he says, you're going to share an NPC that you two create together and send us off to create that NPC together. He, and then he did, so we each got paired off for that. And then, so we each got to create one NPC ourselves. We got to create one NPC together with these groups. And then from that, he built groups or cadres of NPCs around each of us in this town as pillars or well-known people in the community. So he did a similar thing to what I did with Barstock is he gave us a reason to be together as a group. He then gave us ties to the community within the group. And it took us about two months to get this all together before we were all said and done, not a little bit slower, but around the same time frame generally. Actually, it's more like a month that Glenn used for the 1D play test where we basically built our group and our camaraderie. And so when we started, those we knew each other or we knew somebody else's NPC and we knew that, that person was important to that NPC. So again, a lot of those things were not negative factors. They were things that we had a reason to stay. We had a reason right. to do a thing. And, and I got that all the players working there. together too. Yep. And because we were a group where a couple of us knew some of the people, but nobody knew everybody. Like not one player knew every player in that game. And there are a couple of players that were new to Ben. 
most people had either gamed with them through my game or through some other game or what have you. But it, it but it allowed us to all come together in a way that was very organic and unique. And he was very careful about who he signed. He did not assign me to get to work with Matt, who I've known for. 37 some odd years or 30 some odd <laughs> years or art who I've known for nearly as long. He assigned me to work with, with one of the players that I had just, I met through the game, even though she was a friend of Jen, who we all talk about on the show all the time. I didn't work with Jen because I'd known Jen for four or five years. So Jen worked with somebody else that she didn't know. So he basically got us to work with a player we didn't know. So we built that relationship while building our characters for this game. So there are things that you can do a lot of that falls on campaign prep, but all of that makes session prep very, very easy yeah. because we were already in. So these story beats, these plot points or these touch points that we need to hit within our various time frames become easier to figure out. They become intuitive to figure out if you've done some of that overarching planning up front. Yeah, that's a really interesting sort of. I think that the whole concept of NPCs is probably something that we could talk about as a whole separate episode, so we probably should. But I'll, I'll also go ahead and say on that, you were talking about the collaborative world-building aspect earlier and about how collaborative world-building is something that you have to go ahead and make space for in your game if you're going to go ahead and do it. Again, I think back to the SDA session where I had a farm of NPCs that I'd written that did not have any connections to any of the players until the game session began because the connection between these NPCs and the players were made through collaborative world building. Yep. You want to talk about flying without a net because there are so many different directions that could have gone because the choice of what the connection between player and NPC was rolled. So it was random. And then the players got to pick which NPC they had that connection to. So there was no guarantee. I think I actually, and when we air this episode, you'll hear what I mean. I actually think that I got pretty lucky that friend of the show and Patreon supporter, Dave Riddout rolled the connection that he rolled and picked the NPC that he picked because it really made a lot of what happens in that adventure good. It's but, part but, and that whole piece is part of what yeah, led yeah. us down that strange, crazy conspiracy theory that was heading us in the wrong direction, but it was exactly, hot. which is why the yeah. session that I thought was going to take three hours. Yeah. That whole, that whole chain of events is what took it from a three hour session in my mind to a five hour session, because right. yeah. I thought that I was going to have to explain thing or if that I was going to have to be way more explicit about things that were happening then I wound up having to be because of that singular connection. And so, yeah, it took twice as long to get there because it happened organically at the table. The players were driving it all. I was no longer driving. I was no longer in the driver's seat making those touch points happen. I was just like sitting back and when they would get near it, throwing the touch point in front of them and just be like, oh, hey, by the way, look, a thing just happened. <laughs> look, it's the end of the episode. There we go. That's which I found I found really interesting and fun as a storyteller, but I could also imagine that was would be a little intimidating if you weren't prepared for that kind of possibility. Yeah. Anyway. I've, we've said that STA has some benefits. We've 
talked and extolled the virtues of our Patreon group at great length on the show. And Dan's repeating that they are really strong role players who are here for the story. And because of that, they will take the beats we provide and they will run with them. And so if you are a storyteller or a GM who has the luxury of being with a group that you've gamed with for a while or the luxury of cultivating a group over time or having already cultivated a group over time, that does a lot of the heavy lifting with this topic. A lot of the heavy lifting. There are things that I'm able to do with my Monday night group that I could never do with five people at a walking game at a game store. However, what I am finding now is the key is play the right game for the five people that walk in at the game store and build and you cultivate that group. And that doesn't mean that that 5e is not the game for that, right? Because it can be, yep. but you might have to go box versus homebrew. Or if yep. you're going homebrew, you might have to plan a homebrew that is settled in more like a box game. So my Tales of the Wake Runner game that I run at conventions frequently is perfect for quick four-hour sessions or three-hour sessions or at a at a game store or walk-in groups because it has a built-in thing. It's a military unit. Everybody's here on the ship. The mission has been given every adventure I have done for that and all the adventures that I have kind of at least ghostwritten or outlined are here's the mission. My prep is very simple for those games. The missions are already plotted. You're going to go here to do a thing or you're going to get to the point X, retrieve item Y or whatever that very basic tropey mission is. Your, your characters come from a set of pre-gens because that is a convention game. So I do all pre-gens. I just allow players who return to the game to play their existing character leveled up. And as they level up three levels, I will level the bulk of unused pre-gens up by one. So everybody's playing within a range. Nobody's more than two levels apart from the highest leveled person. That's how I do that. But they basically... Pick their characters. They are all characters of a stature because Wake Runner is a ship designed for creatures that are small or lower. So it's dwarves, gnomes, halflings, and smaller. Everybody on the ship. There are no humans. There are no orcs or whatever. And they are the small ship that sails in and does stealth missions for the Royal Navy. And they retrieve people. They handle spy missions. They sneak in, bring, bring in dignitaries, rescue spies, exfil people, that type of thing. And they sail around the seas doing cool stuff. It's great for convention games. It's great for walk-in games because I've got a setup. I have a process. The only thing I have to do from game prep really is I got three hours. I got to put in an exploration piece. I got to put in an RP somewhere in the middle. I've got to put in a minor conflict generally between the exploration and the RP, a trap in the exploration or a trap in the RP if I want to really dice it up. And then I have a conflict that the big boss intervenes in at some point on the back end. We're in, we're out, and we have a blast. That's And the only thing I have to do is vary the environment. And when you're in the Southern Islands, you can pick any environment you want. They can go to the top of a mountain. They can go in a desert. They can fight insects. They can fight dinosaurs. They can fight an enemy force. They can break into a prison. They can have, I can start them captured and they can fight out. I even had one adventure where they came back to their ship. I basically said, you just finished a previous mission. You come back to your ship and there's zombies on your ship. 
have fun. And it was literally a game about clear your ship of the zombies and try to rescue your captain who's holed up in the hold. And that was the whole game. And they're like, I did not expect we were playing Thriller today, <laughs> but I was sitting here as a storyteller going, da, 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 and it was brilliant. But you play the game for your scenario. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway I can give anybody is know your time frame, know the kind of table you're likely to end up with, and then plan for that. And you yeah. got to decide your game system and your specific type of game based on that. So on on that level, Glenn, when you ran One Crazy Night in Waterdeep, which is the mm. as far as I knew, at least in recent memory, the only game that you've that or the only module or adventure that you ran multiple times in quick succession as you were working out the ring. Yep. I remember you saying when we ran it and recorded it that that it had gone differently than it had gone any other time. So how can you elaborate on that a little bit and click through the lens of what Leonica was just saying, where it's like you had the framework, but everything in the middle was all jumbled up in broken glass. It's just because you never know what the players are going to do. So one crazy night in Waterdeep, which may be eventually published, so I won't give away too many spoilers on it, <laughs> is basically an adventure that involves investigating someone who was kidnapped and trying to figure out, because they don't know exactly who took this person so that you can then track them down and rescue them and water deep for a specific reason it all happens to happen in one night your lives are in jeopardy if it doesn't work out stakes are high your blood's running hotter and things get a little bit crazy right but just that very first scenario after the introduction which is effectively trying to sneak through a neighborhood being heavily patrolled by guards looking for the witness that you know where is without getting caught and get to a shop to investigate. And every group approaches it differently. My first group chose to approach from an alley, time the guards' movements, and dodge from alley to alley and work their way around the map. It actually took them longer, slowly, until they got to the place without ever getting caught. And it was masterful. Like, they were pulling off distraction, using prestidigitation, everything <laughs> they could to distract the guards. The next group that went through it immediately started one big distraction by lighting a fire on one end of the districts, drew everybody to that, a large part of the people to that side. Because in a large city, you can't have fire. Bad mojo. It spreads too fast. So even the guards had to go to fight it, and they just went straight to where they needed to go, and they were done. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. It was quick. So it really does, it depends on how your players approach it. During the chase scene, some people just chase. Other people focus on trying to give up their forward momentum in order to find a way to stop the person that's running now, because there's a chase scene in One Crazy Night in Waterdeep. So you take the chance of stopping to try to get off your whole person and hope that he doesn't save so that he's stuck. But if he doesn't, you've just fallen so far behind, it's going to be hard for you to get back into this race. So there were lots of decisions on how you plan it there. And it's all a matter of who's sitting at the table and the kind of decisions they make. That one too, the first one, they ran the race and it ran pretty much exactly like I thought it was going to run. And it's fun because you run through some weird scenes, like some guys playing a LARP called, what did I call that game? It's like attorneys and tax, it's lawyers and tax and tax auditors attorneys. or something, it's something like, like that. that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. One guy's like, I cast standardized testing. Well, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on in the background. <laughs> but in the second run through of that, the players at the table came up with a way to stop the guy before he made it through two scenes and boop, that was it. It was done. So they didn't get to experience standardized testing or in that one in particular you could wind up with a permanent injury where you took one point of damage as you were attacked because they thought you were the the bge for the evening for the larp hmm. and you wind up with a permanent like lead mark under your skin 
because they stabbed you with a pencil and the lead broke off and it never comes out again. And you're like, that happened when we were a kid. <laughs> anyway, I'm babbling. But there's no way to know exactly which way it's going to go because of the players. You don't know how they're going to approach the scenario. So you've always got to be ready to shift and move on the fly. And honestly, pull things. Because there's a scene in One Crazy Night in Waterdeep that will probably go into the adventure that's never been played yet. Yep. Because there's not that's enough crazy. time to fin it in the standard three to four hour session. But most modules actually are a little longer than that. So the next time I'm running it, I'm going to pull out the chase scene and I'm going to insert the trap hall leg. So that I can play test that a couple of times before it actually nice. gets written. Nice. I don't know. Did I answer your question? Or did I do most? You, you did, and I'm amazed that in three playthroughs of it, that there's still material that never even got through. And I think that kind of underscores the point that we're talking about about how if you're looking to lay out a session, know how much time you've got. Think about how many touch points or milestones or scenes or kind of linchpin things that you want to have happen within that span of time. And then have a wealth of material that you can use to go ahead and fill in those gaps or material that you can pull out if your players don't need it or don't want it, don't need it, whatever. But make sure that you make sure that you know how you're structuring it out and make that difference between things that have to happen and things that could happen but don't necessarily have to happen. Yep. Yeah. Cool. I think we did a great job leading into the topic. There are yeah. probably things that audience members may have questions on. And if you do, let us know. Hit the comments down below. Make sure we know if there's something you want us to talk about our game, game, our game prep or specific elements, because we did some really broad strokes, but covered our concepts here tonight. Let us know. Hit us in the comments about anything you need more detail on. We'll either do a whole new show on just that specific detail or that area. Uh, I think we realized and we specifically did not talk about NPCs tonight because we know that's a whole show on itself. I was just going to say, I've already taken so, notes to go ahead and make that an entire episode yeah, on its own. Yeah, so we're, we're going we're gonna to do that as well. We didn't talk about some very mechanical things, pick your stat blocks and all of that. I think we'll probably get to those, if not in their own show, certainly parts of other shows. But this was more about the overall concept of planning sessions. This is the planning piece. This is the high-level piece and the thought process piece, what you need to consider, and we'll hit the specifics. As you let us know, we need to let you know. Yeah. All right. So we have just wrapped up the uh, the run-through of the box set with our STA Patreon actual play. So this coming Tuesday begins actually with my adventure, the station adventure that I ran with our Patreons. That's going to start this coming Tuesday. The, uh, oh, I'm in that one. I'm in that one. I'm I so know. I'm, very, I'm, I'm really excited to see how this one, how this one comes out. There's always kind of that moment where it's, I thought that it was really cool and I thought that it went really well. And I really hope that the tape supports me on this because right. if the tape doesn't, I'm just going to cry. That's, uh, but I, I think you guys are in for a good time. I, I know Glenn enjoyed it. I think that this yeah, will be, uh, as a player at the table, like, I think your fears are unfounded. I think it was, right, I appreciate that. Thank you. And then next Friday, Lunik was just talking about some of the other episodes that we're looking to come up here in our storyteller toolbox. We're going to be doing an entire episode all about sidekicks and the concept of maybe the NPC plus for lack of a better phrase right sidekicks other kind of npcs that play a more active role than than maybe some others so that's going to be on on next week's episode here all that to say thank you very much for listening hope that this episode was useful and like luanika said make sure you let us know in the comments on twitter via email on facebook wherever you're listening to us let us know what you want to hear we're already planning an npc episode but let us know what other things you want us to break out in to help us set up your storytelling session okay. all right gentlemen good job as always appreciate your time tonight appreciate everybody out there listening and uh, yeah we'll talk to you again next week Thanks very much, everybody. Have a good night. Have a wonderful night.
Arigatou, y'all. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at TT Journeys, joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday, and every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash TT Journeys. Check it out today and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible, you would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for legends await. Oh,